Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. Good morning. Hi everyone. Welcome to another week of Dubai Works podcast. Uh, this week we're joined by a true Dubai entrepreneur and CEO, Ritash Tilani. Uh, he's going to talk about his company Enhance, how it's structured, uh, how he's been an entrepreneur in this space for the last few years, and one of the consumer-facing products uh, that you will probably know of is Joy Gifts. Um, a lot about what they're doing during uh, the COVID-19 uh, and also looking to trends in the future. Uh, good morning, Ritesh. Morning, Richard. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for joining us and good to see you uh, remotely. <laughs> yes, pleasure to be on the show. So I, I can see from your setup there that you're working from home. Uh, is that something that you adapted to or were you ready for this? I mean, look, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the norm has always been traditionally to work from an office. And, and we did too. And especially as a growing company, when you have, you know, a, a lot of team members in which you're trying to instill a certain kind of culture and there's new members joining all the time. It's good to have face-to-face -face interaction. Um, but at the same time, we've had offices in five countries so far. So we had UAE, Saudi, Jordan, Egypt, and Turkey. So we were always working with remote teams to start off with. So it wouldn't be face-to-face -face interactions with many of our employees as it is. So working from home all of a sudden doesn't change anything for a big chunk of that team when they interact with us or we interact with them. Mm. And so it hasn't been that much of, of a change. And I always, as I was telling you offline, you know, I've always had this office kind of set up, designed into my living room from the get-go, just because I spend so much time with work. And uh, and so I have my desk and, and a monitor and everything. And, and the office chairs. Office chairs. Yeah, I think that's a real yeah. tip. I think people, I heard of some people sneaking into their offices and taking their work chairs home just so their posture can be good at home as well. But you're already prepared. Absolutely. Uh, amazing. So, yeah, just a bit of context. Uh, can you tell us the company you mentioned in those t countries? Uh, can you talk a little bit about Enhance and what, yeah, what you do? Sure. So, so I guess starting off with Enhance is, is probably the right thing to do in, in this context. It, and essentially, well, you know, my partner Alper and I started Enhance back in, in 20, late 2015, um, early 2016. And so, you know, if I step back even further, I mean, I'm from the region. I was born and raised in, in the UAE. Um, so I'm sort of a son of the soil, if you will. And uh, you know, I've been in this region for the longest time, the biggest chunk of my life. And I've been surrounded by entrepreneurs and SMEs. And as you know, Dubai is, you know, a very SME heavy uh, economy. And so for us, you know, launching businesses of our own at some point was kind of natural. I, I was bound to do that eventually, um, even though I spent some time in, in consulting and corporate strategy and so on in the US in Singapore in Europe. Um, but this was my passion, building a business from scratch. Now, having built a few businesses over the years, what I realized was that all of us are operating in silos and the, the, the Middle East is a very difficult place 
compared to many other regions to start businesses in. It's very expensive. There's a lot more bureaucracy, and that's gotten better over the years, granted. Still very expensive and still difficult. You know, finding talent is not easy. Um, you know, getting them visas and so on adds up in costs as well. The trade licenses, office space is a requirement. You know, working from home, which many people, you know, they start businesses in garages in, in the Valley, for example. We can't do that here, right? We need to have at least a virtual desk somewhere uh, or a physical office if you plan to have a team. Um, and that's just the admin and bureaucracy side of things, just to get it set up. Then, you know, um, building the tech and finding the talent for that, um, you know, identifying the right marketing tools, um, acquiring customers for your business. You know, so we're all paying Google and Facebook, for example, um, to acquire customers in search and on social media. And each of us is paying Google and Facebook for that same customer, right? And then fundraising is another big one as well. It takes up a lot of time. In our experience, it's taken 40 to 50% of all of our bandwidth, right? Yeah. So each business is doing that kind of uh, standalone. And we figured after having done this a few times and, and having invested in businesses and seeing them go through the same challenges and, and having multiple investments which wouldn't necessarily collaborate together, right? Um, you know, for example, sharing customer database is not so simple. One business thinks theirs is more valuable than the others. And so they expect to be paid for their database. So sharing doesn't happen so freely unless you have the same set of stakeholders in both businesses. So we decided to launch what we called at the time a venture builder. Turns out there is an actual uh, globally accepted term for this called startup studios. Mm. Um, and, and essentially you, you just launch a number of businesses under the same portfolio, the same umbrella organization. And so the ownership is exactly the same across those businesses, 100% owned by the startup studio in our case. And, and so you don't have any issues or friction getting those businesses to share assets and resources across the portfolio. And so all of a sudden, um, you know, getting customers becomes much easier and cheaper. And when you launch every subsequent business, you just take the database from the previous business and hand it over to the next one for free overnight. So that gives it a huge head start, mm. right? It takes a lot less time to get to the same level of scale with a lot less money. So the fundraising requirement goes down as well. Mm. And at the same time, you're fundraising as a group. So each business doesn't have to go and fundraise on its own. And so now all of a sudden you've practically doubled their bandwidth to focus on building the business rather than on you know building business and then going and pitching it to investors and then going through the due diligence and so on and so forth, right? So, Interesting. so, so, so that's kind of where the, the startup studio model came from. And we decided to launch it with one business and that's what, we, that's what you know as Joy now. Um, and then, and we're getting ready now to launch multiple new businesses one after the other. And are they businesses that you launch or do uh, founders and entrepreneurs come to you with a concept? And if so, what's the split and how does that work? Sure. So we have, I mean, we're ex-management consultants. I used to work at Bain. My partner, Alper, worked, uh, worked at McKinsey. And we have a lot more experience other than that, our consulting days as well. And now we're joined by our, our partner in Saudi as of about six months ago or so, Mohammed um, Al-Hokel Mo. And, and so, you know, amongst the three of us, we have a lot of business ideas. We've been doing this for long enough. We see the gaps in the market. Mm. We have connections to 
other more advanced ecosystems like Europe and you know in the US you have the Valley, Silicon Valley. And so we see, we have the benefit of foresight in this region because we're a little bit behind the curve. We were playing catch up to a certain extent. Um, and, and so we, we see what models are working elsewhere and we're documenting all of that and figuring out how we can adapt it to better suit the needs of the customers here in the Middle East, right? Mm. And, and so we have this long list and, and based on certain criteria, for example, how big is the market for that particular opportunity? Um, are we the right people to execute on it? So ease of implementation, right? Whether it's in terms of our expertise or the resources that we have, thanks to our previous businesses, for example, or the network that we have access to through our existing relationships, through our investors, for example, as well, and other stakeholders. So, so we prioritize based on, on that those criteria. And then now a more recent development also, another criteria added is, is it COVID-19 proof, mm. right? So will this survive given the current situation and assuming the situation extends for the next year or two, mm. right? Will it even flourish in this particular situation? So, so you know, if we had unlimited bandwidth, we'd go and launch all of these businesses ourselves, right? But we can't. Um, we only have so many hours in a day and there's only so many of us to start off with. So we do invite founders to come and start these businesses with us. Now, in some cases, a founder might have an idea of his own that he's already been working on to, to, for, for a certain amount of time. And in, in one particular case, turns out, this is an actual real story, and I'll tell you about it later as well, we'll touch on that business. But um, we're working with somebody who had this idea, turns out we had the same idea, okay. and we'd already been working on it as well. So we just joined forces, and it was very easy to do that, oh. right? Um, but, but in general though, we already have enough ideas to keep us busy. We're looking for talent to come and help us build these businesses. Now, for, for us, because we're a startup studio, because we're raising money centrally, we, we're able to unlock uh, a certain pool of talent that would generally not be able to you know, start ventures of their own, mm. right? And so you have your typical founders, um, people who have had businesses of their own in the past, it may or may not have done well, they're looking for their next opportunity. And this time, maybe they want to do it with a bigger organization, with more resources, with processes in place, assets that they can use like a customer database, fundraising already in place. So it becomes very, very attractive for them to come and work with us, right? So they might get less equity, but their chances of success are much higher. So there's that traditional pool of talent. Then we also have uh, a lot of um, you know, people working in the corporate world who have aspirations to become a founder. They have friends who are doing it and, and they look at these friends and say, wow, this is very exciting. I wish I could do this too. But, you know, I have a mortgage to pay, I have tuition for the kids' school and, and so on and so forth, all these financial responsibilities and obligations. So I can't just quit my job and not get paid for the next one year, mm. right? Because that's usually what a founder has to go through. Um, now, all of a sudden, because we have funding in place, because we can help them ramp up very quickly uh, and we can pay them a, a salary, it might not be as high as what they used to get paid in the corporate world, but nonetheless, it's something and it does cover their costs, right? So, so all of a sudden, all of those people are able to enter you know, the, the, the startup world 
and, and they come with a lot more experience on average. They've been doing this for much bigger corporations. And, and so they also have a vision for how to scale the business to, to what heights it can go, right? And they also come with a, a pretty extensive network that comes in very handy for a lot of the business models that we're exploring. So in many cases, one struggle that uh, startups and founders usually have is you can build a B2C business and it'll scale up as much as you can put money into marketing it, right? But then there's another opportunity in the B2B world where if you can cut one deal with one large corporate, yeah, that's as good as like a few months worth of runway. Mm. And so you, you, you have a step change in the business in, in the, the opportunity and, and how you can scale revenues just by cutting one or two or three deals, mm. right? It's not linear, it's, it's a step change. Yeah. So that's very exciting as a startup studio to be able to tap into that segment of the population to come and work with us. Interesting. I'm going to touch back on two things you mentioned earlier. Uh, Secondly, on the Middle East and the, and the kind of uh, approach to doing business across different countries here. And um, but firstly, on uh, you, you mentioned a passion for building companies. I, I understand, you know, and I think a lot of people will in terms of um, a startup and you know the the things that go with co-working spaces and licenses and um, headache things that you don't necessarily have the cost or want to work are you know need to do at the start. And then there's a lot of Secondly, a lot of um, shared uh, resources like uh, admin, software, uh, cloud, different things like that. But, you know, I just question around, you know, building a kind of a meaningful long term company. How how much does Enhance get involved and what are your personal views on the parts that aren't mentioned there, such as culture, values, uh, processes and things like that. Is that something that uh, you think there's good ways to do things that you can share across all the different startups? Absolutely. So, I mean, you mentioned admin and all that. That, of course, is just, it's a hygiene factor, right? It's a tick a box. There is a set process. Most companies follow the same one. Most companies use the same tools on that front as well. But there is there is a process for launching businesses and and, 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 and that varies from startup to startup. And it depends very heavily on the founder themselves and their experience, right? Sometimes it's influenced by the investors that come in as well. And that's what investors are meant to do, aside from giving the cash, they're also supposed to provide guidance because they've been doing, they've been, you know, seeing businesses grow for a long time and ideally they've invested in many of them. And they're the ones who actually share a lot of the learnings across them. So we're trying to institutionalize that and, and set a process around it where, you know, yes, we're kind of indirectly the investors because we're raising money and then deploying it to the next level. Um, but we're not investors, we're actually founders. We're building this business side by side with the founders that we select for each venture, right? So here what happens is you have learnings from the first business, in our case, Joy. We've been through a number of, you know, trial and error, if you will, but mistakes. In hindsight, they were mistakes. And every founder has to go through that, right? It's part of the part of the journey. Mm. And uh, you know, even the most experienced of founders will make mistakes, which they'll learn from. New mistakes, ideally, not repeating the same ones. But nonetheless, you're learning every time you do this. You're learning. And so, for us to be able to pass on those learnings to another venture and have them avoid making a lot of those mistakes is worth a lot. That's tremendous amounts of value. But setting a process around, you know, things like 
for us, we have certain stages we go through just to, to scale up a business. Ideation is one of them, right? What I just described where we have the criteria. Validation is another. We have, you know, there's a science behind validation. How do you figure out that there is an opportunity for this model in the market, right? Um, and so it involves everything from having a, a minimal, minimum viable product or even before that, you know, you, you can have surveys, you, you can test the idea with people, focus groups and so on. You know, you, you go and see, you know, who are your potential customers? How many of them are there? And so the, the, the size of the market and so on. So that's all things that we do up front, right? Um, then you build a minimum viable product and, and then you actually launch it into the market and scale it up slowly and testing different marketing channels and so on and so forth, right? Before you start pumping in serious amounts of money, right? So this, this is a process that we have documented, right? Even finding the right talent, there is, you know, a, a selection criteria for that. We have interviews, we test for things like cultural fit, right? Um, these, this process is something that the incoming founders can lean on and, and they skip a lot of the reinventing the wheel, if you will. And, and so there you're saving a lot of time. Even the founders that we select, they have to fit culturally with enhance. So what happens is when you're hiring people, you want to hire A players. Those A players will then go and find A players themselves as well, right? So if that middle link doesn't fit with the, the, the holding company enhance, then you can't expect their team to fit with Enhance either. Mm. So there's a lot of that. And, and yes, there is, you know, institutionalizing a lot of the processes and, and culture. And so in the very beginning, these teams operate as one, even though they're different businesses, we're actually sharing resources across the different ventures. So in the beginning, you'll have a skeletal crew for any given business and the mothership is going to lend talent. So that way they get to interact with our core talent base and that culture kind of seeps into the, the founding team for that venture, mm. right? And then even when, when that core talent goes away, they've kind of left behind that stamp, that, that DNA of Enhance, yeah. right? And we, we as founders of Enhance, we're also there to work side by side with each of these founders. So there's a lead partner from the three of us that focuses on any given business. And we kind of share responsibilities across that. Interesting. And so do you see Enhance as a holding company? Um, and if so, the, co the companies that grow out of that uh, startup studio, um, other than an investment, will they have an other type of an operational involvement? Uh, you know, some holding companies are, are very kind of uh, standoffish in terms of how they uh, let, I don't know the real management term for it, but operational control at an individual level versus being involved and operational control partially at a holding level as well. Yeah, so what you're describing is centralization versus decentralization, right? So you have different business units, if you will, rather than different companies. Hmm. So in our case, um, that's pretty much how it works, actually, if you think about it. So there are certain uh, functions which the, the business, each individual business doesn't need to have. So for example, um, legal is a perfect example. You know, you don't necessarily need to have legal counsel for each individual business standalone, right? That's overkill. There's a lot of spare capacity there that is underutilized. And so, you know, this is why you don't see legal counsel with a lot of startups until they reach a series B or series C even, right? Um, and so if we can have that centrally, 
you know, one or two people, mm. then they can give part of their time to each venture as required. And the cost for that given venture goes down dramatically. And they have that capability in-house all of a sudden, mm. which otherwise they'd have to wait two or three years to get to be able to afford. So, so in, in certain cases, you do centralize a lot of those functions, like accounting and admin as well, even recruiting. You know, If we can attract talent as enhance, and we have a central pool or bank of these CVs, then whenever a single venture has a new role that comes up, they simply tap into that master database and they can easily find these CVs. And so centrally, you're maintaining relationships with a lot of this talent mm. and potentially even passing them along proactively to a lot of these ventures. So all of a sudden, that's another area that helps each venture succeed, you know, faster, better, quicker, bigger. It's it's the talent is one of the biggest the biggest levers in the success of a business. Mm. And we do that centrally and professionally, right? We have a we'll have a director of HR um, who whose only job it is to find talent across the portfolio. Yeah. Right. So so that's the kind of stuff you want to centralize. Yeah. And then for for each individual venture, as they scale up, at some point they need to raise money externally. So we'll fund them up until a certain point, and then they they need to, to raise money from from you know institutional investors for further validation as well of the model and the valuation. Right? We can't keep you know arbitrarily valuing it and say you know it's worth ten million dollars. Who says we do? That's not good enough, right? So you do need external validation for that as well, and that's part of the reason to bring in you know, investors from outside. But at that point, because you don't own 100% of the venture anymore, you own a, certain, a smaller percentage, you have to, at that point, carve it out. It becomes its own legal entity, if not already sooner. Um, and then they, they do have to start operating separately with their own team, their own HR, their own legal. But at that point, the business is big enough to be able to justify investing in that talent and those functions. Mm. Interesting. So until that point, it's all centralized. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, just moving on to a question. I, I want to ask you as well about how you choose verticals and, and areas, but that will lead into uh, joy gifts and... Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, technical here. Um, joy gifts and uh, your new venture. Uh, just across the Middle East, uh, you mentioned you're in five different uh, countries. Uh, how... What are the stereotypes or the, the known knowns uh, that people are aware of that it's difficult to do to create a business across this region? Um, and then secondly, what are the unknown knowns for you in terms of what are the things that people might not be aware of? Sure. So there's, there's I mean, there's a lot of the usual suspects, you know, having to get a trade license in every single country. You know, you have cross-border restrictions and tariffs. Um, you have different dialects of Arabic, right? You have different currencies and so on and so forth. So those are the usual suspects. Then there's also cultural differences. And, and for example, UAE and Saudi, one would think, you know, they're both part of the GCC. Um, you know, they're, they're all, you know, Khaliji, Arabs and so on. Yeah, we, there is still a very big difference in how culturally you approach business deals. First of all, the UAE has, is predominantly expat driven, right? Mm. So in many cases, you're not even interacting with an Emirati to start off with, whereas it's the exact opposite in Saudi. In Saudi, the vast majority of business owners that you would want to work with are Saudi, mm. right? So, so that in and of itself, you notice the, the, the different cultural nuances. 
And so, and it's a Saudi, it takes a little bit longer because they value, uh, you know, Arabs from GCC in general value relationships a lot more than expats might, for example. And in our case, expats, it's a very transient population to start off with anyway, so why invest in a relationship that, to that extent? For Saudis, they want to do business for a long time to come, and who they do business with and getting to know them well is very important to them. Mm. So meeting, meeting over a lot of shishas and coffees and majlises and so on, that's required. So you need to spend time in Saudi, you know, face-to-face -face and build that relationship. Mm. But once you've built it, then it pays off over time. But a lot of people coming into, especially people coming in from outside the Middle East, but even people from the UAE, they don't realize that. So for us, it was very important to focus on Saudi from day one. We are a Saudi-first company. That is the biggest market in the region. If you're planning to succeed and grow to a certain level of scale that we plan to, you have to succeed in Saudi. There's no two ways about it. Hmm. So when we launched Joy, our first business, we were live in Riyadh within a month of doing so. And, and that is a record. I don't know of any other startup in this region that has managed to crack Saudi to be live there within a month of launching in their domestic market, mm. right? So, so that then also, you know, about two thirds of our funding comes from Saudi as well. That will further help us succeed in, in the kingdom. And, you know, we have everyone from, you know, CEOs of, of major investment banks to, you know, uh, a deputy minister and, and so on and so forth. So there's you know, a long list of angel investors that we have in Saudi. And then we also have institutional investors like Hala Capital and, 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 and um, you know, INET and, and so on and so forth. So, so do, do, doing business in a, a place like Saudi, it helps to have investment from within the kingdom because they will unlock a lot of doors for you. They will help you, you know, expedite through a lot of the bureaucracy and they have, we have seen the results of leveraging our investor network within Saudi. It's been tremendous for us. Amazing to, yeah, to see how, how you focus and put that as a kind of a number one a Saudi first company. Um, I think that often helps to crack an area, whether it's uh, a location or whether it's a customer base. Uh, however, that, you know, that doing a, a country local and uh, applying, you know, with talent and with structure and with investment, um, will help in that market, but uh, around the Middle East in general, it's however many countries we talk about, whether it's the GCC, Levant, or North Africa, uh, it's almost impossible to have uh, 14, 20, 22 uh, offices of the same size, team structures, um, you know, dialect, everything in that way. Um, and companies who try and do Pan-Arab from one location, as you alluded to, face a lot of challenges. Um, is, is your view of enhanced to, in the, in the five markets that you're in, to be, uh, you know, not, yeah, to be as localized as you are in Saudi? I, I don't think, look, it, it all depends on the size of the opportunity. For us, Saudi is the biggest opportunity, okay. so we invest heavily from day one. Now, having said that, we could have invested more in Saudi. It was difficult to find talent there, though, right? Now, you know, we have our, our Saudi partner, Mo. And he's been fantastic. He's been ramping the business up there. And over time, as the Saudi business grows, it's already surpassed our UAE business, by the way, which is fantastic. For the first time in a few years since we started, basically, you know, Saudi is now finally, and, and, and rightly so, bigger than our UAE revenues. And so the size of the office there will also grow proportionally mm. to a certain extent, right? Now, 
in other markets, we, we, we plan to operate with satellite offices, if at all. So for example, Jordan is, is, is a great example of that, right? We, we don't have you know, a big office there like we do in the UAE or Saudi because the size of the market is smaller as well. And frankly, you don't need to replicate your capabilities in every single country. There's a lot of resources that you can centralize, a lot of, a lot of processes, for example, marketing. You don't need to have a marketing team on the ground in every single country. You can actually manage that remotely, mm. as many people do. And you have, you have a ton of agencies in Dubai that you know will will run campaigns for you in many other markets without needing an office there, right? We so we have offices where it's justified to do so. We do have an operations-heavy business like Joy, where we're doing offline deliveries. So you might always have a skeletal crew to manage at least that side of the business mm. in a given market. And even that we do remotely to a certain extent. So for example, Jordan, Amman, covers both Jordan and Lebanon, so Levant. Right? We don't need to have somebody in Lebanon as well. Mm. Um, and then there's other markets like Turkey where we haven't launched yet, right? but we have an office and a team there because that is where you get great technical talent. Mm. So our tech team is, you know, is amazing. And, and we we're lucky enough to find them. And we found them in Turkey, so we opened an office there for mm, them, mm. right? Uh, it's more difficult to find that kind of talent in, in the GCC, for example, as much as we'd like to have them sitting side by side with us, which is irrelevant in this day and age anyway, so it doesn't matter. Mm. You know, we can't do that, and, and so Turkey is, and that's perfectly fine. And at some point, we can launch Turkey as well, because we now have a trade license there. Okay. So any business we launch, they leverage those trade licenses and those offices and the colleagues that we already have in those markets. Why do you think that is from a tech point of view? Because there are a lot of universities in Dubai, there's a lot of uh, youth here, there's a lot of young talent. We've experienced from a content point of view, it's a, it's a great place. And also in Saudi as well, you know, uh, there's a lot of media graduates, a lot of uh, universities as well. Uh, are you finding that some people who take chances here on um, uh, tech and that type of talent, um, you know, not maybe on, not maybe from a mass investment, but just from a kind of a couple of people based in the market, um, or, or do you think that we, you know, we'll never be able to have the talent here for uh, tech companies? No, I think we will. I think that's changing quite quickly, especially now that, you know, for example, e-commerce businesses are flourishing. So what talent are they going to need? Tech, obviously, right? So there are the more opportunities there are in the market, the more you'll find talents retooling themselves or, you know, coming out of university with that skill set. And so over time, you will have more and more talent readily available here. We started this four years ago. So, you know, at that time, it was very difficult to come by. It's changed a bit since then. It's still very expensive to get talent here because the cost of living is so high. Yeah. So, you know, especially in the UAE, you know, our rents, our visas and so on and so forth, all of that adds up. Mm. And so the expectation of that same skill set of the resource with that skill set is higher than it would be in other markets like Turkey or, yeah. or you know, those. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about Joy Gifts. It's a strong brand visually. It, I know it's got a lot of meaning behind it. Um, and essentially, it's an e-commerce gifting company. Can you talk about the idea and how it fitted with the enhanced philosophy? Sure. Um, so, so one thing I failed to mention earlier was 
uh, Enhance has a focus. Okay. The reason why we can share these resources across businesses is because they follow a similar theme. And that theme is online marketplaces. So we are in the business of building and growing online marketplaces. The reason we do that is one, because you know, there's a lot of businesses that are offline and there's a lot of consumers that are transacting offline today with them. And they, they want to transact online, but they can't because these businesses don't have an online presence. So we give them that online presence. We also give the consumers convenience in the sense that you go to one place to find all the options, kind of like an online shopping mall, right? You go to the mall because you can go to a number of different shops and, and buy you know, products across different categories. We allow you to do the same in a marketplace. So on Joy, for example, you have flowers, cakes, and, and other gourmet products, unique gifts and experiences and online gift cards and so on. And I'll get into that as well. But, but essentially, we're simply connecting to you know, pieces of puzzle that already exist. And, and so we can do that at scale and we'll add an extra layer on top of that with logistics as we did enjoy as required so that we can go pick up from the, the product from the merchant and deliver it to the consumer. But the beauty of the marketplace model is the fact that you don't have to hold any inventory, right? That's on the supplier. And so it's just in time, it's dropship. So we get the order, we pass it on to the supplier, we go pick it up and we deliver it to the consumer. And so no inventory, our working capital isn't tied up and it becomes very easy for us to scale. And so, and also depending on how, you know, behavior or preferences change from the consumer standpoint, you know, we already have a catalog, hopefully it's wide enough and our consumers will still find something there to buy. And so we don't have to throw out a bunch of our products and go find new ones. Is that, or have debts. Is that the model for all your online marketplaces or does it depend and is that Joy specific? It, it depends. But so far, I mean, for Joy, this model works great, right? So for Joy, the, the reason we, we went after gifting in the first place was because we found that as a challenge. And, and, and you know, as consumers, to have to go somewhere to pick up a gift and then what to pick and so on, and then you have to go to the recipient to deliver it, doesn't work. I can't always do that. And so we found that the experience was quite broken and we found that from our, our friends as well. And so, and, and with gifting, the margins are pretty decent. So there is room to play there. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we found that that is also a very big market. So for example, you have 900,000 birthdays uh, every day across the region. You have you know, 18,000 new babies being born. You have 200,000 anniversaries being celebrated. So it's a big, big opportunity, yeah. right? And, and, and there, what a lot of our peers uh, either don't understand yet or simply don't have the capability to deliver on, it's, it's that it's not about getting a box from point A to point B, as when you buy something from Amazon, for example. It's about making someone feel special. That is it, that's the bottom line. If you can't do that, you failed. Mm. You failed the marketplace, you failed as a sender of that gift, mm. right? So. So it's all about that relationship. And that's what we focused on from the get-go. That's why we called it joy. It's about delivering joy hmm. to that recipient. We were, right? we, so we were in the office here a couple of weeks ago and we'd done a piece of coverage for uh, the Abu Dhabi ports. An agency working on it uh, sent us a really nice gift of cupcakes. This is before Ramadan. And it was in a purple box and it was just packaged so nicely. and. It, uh, you know, the brand was felt, the experience that you're describing, Joy Gift was felt. And, you know, I had, I had, um, I think I had my mum's birthday coming up afterwards. And I was, I was thinking, wow, that's a much better way to do it. 
uh, than Amazon or as you described. So, uh, you know, and that's why I reached out again to you at the time, because I could I could see the product was very nice to use experience from an app point of view. It delivered on time. So um, it, it felt like you had created something that worked and that was special, I guess. Yeah, no, I appreciate the, the kind words. I'm glad that, you know, you guys had a great experience in the office and that your mom liked her gift as well. And, and thank you. But, uh, thank you for the support. But you, uh, you have to, you have launched this sort of business gifting product as well. So we have, um, and and so we call it joy at work, uh, kind of a bit of a play on on the words. And so you know th this is something that has actually gained a lot of traction with very little resources behind it. Mm. So all you know today, if you think about it, corporates are gifting you know their customers, their employees, and and so on already, right? So we wanted to help them as well. Today, they have to ask, for example, the team assistant or the secretary to go figure it out. And she then, he or she then has to go through hell coordinating across different vendors and payments and you know addresses and making sure it's delivered on time or at all in many cases. So we wanted to give them that same convenience that we've given the B2C side of the business, right? Mm. And, and so, you know, Again, we've, we, we, we give them an easy way to, to give us their, their, their list of customers or employees that they want to impress or, or gift to, um, the dates on which they want it, their phone number. So this goes, by the way, on the B2C side as well. One pain point that we found was a lot of people don't have the address for the recipient, yet that is a required field in the checkout process in practically every other e-commerce site, mm. right? So. I, for example, Richard, I don't know where you live. If I want to send you for something for your birthday, all I have is your phone number because we exchange WhatsApps at some point, mm. right? But I don't need to know your your address, and and you know I don't need to ask you for it because I, I don't want to ruin the, the the surprise. So our call center will reach out to the recipients as long as they have the mobile number, and they'll get the address while maintaining the surprise element, ah, right? Okay. And so that that is. And it's useful for businesses for a different reason, not because they want to surprise anybody. They would like to, of course, but they simply don't have all the addresses for all the customers. Mm. So we can do that. So we've worked with, you know, Bulgari as a brand um, to deliver cupcakes to, to journalists, by the way, before big media events. We, we delivered gifts to customers of Shivas, of Nike. Um, we work with many of the major banks. So, for example, HSBC on you know, milestone birthdays of their top clients, they use us to deliver, you know, a, a nice experience, a menu of gift options that the customer can pick from on the spot. Mm. And we hand them the voucher for this experience, for example, um, like a spa treatment or yoga, yoga class or something like that. Um, we work with Emirates NBD to do the same. If their customers are celebrating, you know, uh, buying a new house or it's their anniversary or birthday or the son's graduated, you know, these are all occasions for their relationship managers to send a gift to remind them that there is a relationship here and we value it, right? So, so with B2B, it's a great, you know, business opportunity. It's been growing very nicely. We, we plan to have more resources put behind it and that'll only help. Interesting. I guess there must be a trade-off and when Joy Gifts is growing as it is, uh, whether, you know, to go all in on it versus have, supporting the exist, the new ideas with Enhance, um, because, you know, your, your product and your experience and your branding is strong. Would it, would it lead you to wanting to have your own gifts uh, as well as uh, the marketplace, as well as your 
your partner's gifts, your own products? Because obviously yeah. there'd be more margins there as well. Of course, absolutely. So, so, so that's a very interesting, a good point that you raised. For us, the starting point was the process of sending a gift, right? The experience on the website and the delivery experience. Those are the two biggest gaps in the market. So the UX on our website, top notch, we've designed it from the ground up to suit gifting specifically. It's not just another e-commerce site, right? Um, we have features like augmented reality. You can see what a, a bouquet of flowers would look like on your table before you even buy it. Yeah, so right? that looks really cool. It's high definition. It looks like it's literally sitting there just through your screen, right? Um, we have a, a new feature coming up where you can record a video to send with the gift. So the, the person opens the greeting card, they'll see a code in there, they unlock the video, and it's this very nice touching message that the sender sent them, and hopefully it makes the recipient feel very emotional. And as they're feeling these emotions, they can record a reply so that the sender can see how they made the recipient feel, mm. right? And that makes this, the whole experience come full circle. Um, on the delivery front as well, you know, our delivery guys, you saw it when you got the, 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 the delivery in the office, they're wearing nice concierge-style uniforms with a waist jacket, a side cap, and everything. And, and, and in addition to that, something that only we offer in the region is a singing telegram. So you can actually have our delivery agents, you know, for a nominal additional fee, you can have them sing you happy birthday or a love ballad, if it's your anniversary, for example. Mm. For, for Christmas, a few years, we've had them dress up as Santa Claus and, and sing jingle bells. So that, to us, is the biggest part of the, the biggest opportunity is to fill that gap and to differentiate ourselves and create a sticky experience. Now, once we've done that, as we scale further, we can, we have the bandwidth to focus on other parts of the business. And at some point, we may or may not decide to, you know, backward integrate and take on a certain, you know, the production of a certain set of products. Is, um, it does increase the margin, but, but I wouldn't say that's a priority. Is this, uh, from a small business, I see the benefit of this, who wouldn't have the delivery and the digital and the customer, and I can see what you can bring. But from a, a, a touch point point of view, is it uh, tricky for them to outsource and to let go of that engagement with the customer? We saw it historically with e-commerce and how Amazon took share of, of local businesses per se. Um, and what's your view on that? Like, you know, if I'm, if I'm a small flower shop or a, or a, a chocolate company, um, ideally, w would I not want to have that experience with the conversation with the customer and the branding uh, to help grow my business? Absolutely. So look, with many of the brands that we work with, their brand is still there on the product, right? You, for example, you order a Magnolia cake, it comes in a Magnolia box. Mm. There might be some sort of branding on it too, but it's secondary. It's still Magnolia at the end of the day. Godiva chocolates, we sell those as well. Ted Baker, you know, these are all brands that are strong and we're more than happy to showcase them. Even mm. on our site, you will see a brand's category on the homepage, mm. right? So we are by no means trying to take business away from them. We're actually trying to help them grow their business. So they have their, you know, the, the catchment area when they have a physical store. So people within a certain radius will come to the store regardless. Some of them will actually skip buying that product because they don't have time to come to that store. So you're losing that traffic today already. Not everyone has the time to go to the store. Mm. And then you have a much wider population, which is simply nowhere near your store to start off with, and they would never have bought from you as it is. Mm. Then there's a whole bunch of people that don't even live in the same city or country. There's people sitting in the US who want to send their moms a gift for Mother's Day, right? That store would never have gotten that business. 
So if anything, we're actually helping them grow their business. Mm. And, and especially at a time like this, when people don't even want to leave their house, and they shouldn't, frankly, right? Um, they should avoid going out as much as possible. Yeah. During these times, we're hearing from our merchants that, you know, we're so glad we're working with you guys because our business is still running. We still have sales because you guys are doing this. You're selling online for us. You're delivering for us, you know, otherwise we'd be, we'd, we'd be dead in the water. Right? There's, there's no way to go. What are the unit economics around gifting? Is it similar to other uh, last mile delivery companies? And, uh, you know, do you have a, a path to profitability? So, so there, there is, it's interesting, I'll, I'll answer the second question first. The path to profitability is something that a lot of startups tend to ignore because there's always funding readily available, right? That's changed. And we weren't counting on it to start off with anyway. We've built joy from the get-go as a business that is meant to sustain itself past a certain point, mm. right? Unlike the WeWorks of the world, right, we're not... We're not growing this business at the expense of just, you know, of profitability and relying on funding. So what we've done, the reason we picked gifting in the first place was because the unit economics were so attractive, mm. right? Go after, you know, the cell phone industry, for example, and, 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 you know, disrupt that as well. There is opportunity there as well. It's not like there isn't, mm. you know, Amazon and Noon are doing a great job, but there's still gaps in the market, mm. but the margins are tiny there. It's a commodity that's dropping in value every single day, right? It's yeah. very stressful. And, and you have to have significant volumes to make up money. Um, so for us, gifting was very attractive for that reason. One, because the unit economics are very attractive. So, you know, flowers, for example, there's plenty of margin in there. Um, and there's plenty of wastage as well. That's partly where the margin comes from. Because in our case, we're not holding inventory. And so there is no wastage. So there is more for us to gain from that. Um, with cakes as well, chocolates, depending on which brand we're talking about, the economics are slightly different, but it's still more than many other categories of products. And so that helps. And then because of the differentiated experience that we offer, it's sticky and people are willing to pay a little bit more. Having said that, we don't charge a little bit more. We charge the same exact price as you would find in the retail store, right? With a bit of a delivery fee, but that's, you know, it's completely justifiable, especially in this environment where the cost of delivery has gone up significantly as well. Is it, right? it's more, is it a percentage or is it a set fee or does it depend on category? So the delivery fee is fixed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like the cost of delivery for us, actually there is some variance because one of the benefits that we offer is if you order products from a variety of different categories, like balloons, chocolates, flowers, we actually have to go to three different suppliers to go pick it up mm. and then deliver it as one, mm. as you would expect. A yeah. gift is meant as one. So the cost does go up for us, but we don't necessarily pass that on to the customer. We average it out mm. and it's a fixed fee that you can predict. Okay. Right. That you can predict. On average, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, 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 the other thing, actually, uh, I just wanted to mention, I mean, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier. The, 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 the way we differentiate our product is one, the delivery experience, and then also, the brand you mentioned, right? I mean, the reason we called ourselves Joy is because we want to spread joy. Um, you know, when you were talking about your experience of receiving that gift and your mother's experience of receiving it, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but I was smiling. Uh, I, this is how I feel every time I hear of a customer having had a good experience. That's one of the other reasons why we prioritize gifting, because that's something that both, you know, 
my partner Alper and I feel very strongly about, and I know Mo does as well, even though he joined more recently. You know, this is for us. It's it's not just about you know building a business and and you know um, growing it and then leaving an impression and so on. It's also about doing something good. I sleep better at night knowing that I made you know somebody else's day uh, more delightful in some way. Yeah. And and so and so that's why gifting is perfect because you're actually making two people happy, the sender and the recipient, and you're strengthening that relationship between them as well. So we truly feel passionate about this, uh, this, this industry in general, right? We want to do this to make people happy. Mm. We'll make money in the process as well, no doubt, because it is a sustainable business model and the unit economics are great. And by the way, we're almost at profitability now already. Right. So, so I'm not concerned about that. Um, but then also when it shows when it comes to our marketing campaigns as well. I mean, you, you've seen a few of them in the past and you've helped support us with that as well. But yeah, we've done some very creative marketing campaigns in the past, which include, you know, um, working with big brands like Kareem, for example, to, to pull off the fake birthday mm. campaign where somebody can, can, you know, deliver a gift for a fake birthday to somebody in a, a public environment. And we show up with a group of five or 10, and we sing happy birthday at the top of our lungs and we embarrass them after they're done being confused <laughs> and, and we record that on video and then we put it up on social media, yeah. right? And that, we got half a million views from that just in the first 48 hours, that too over a weekend. Now we're launching, for example, a, 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 an influencer page, right? So we're, we're working with a, a large number of influencers and agencies to basically give each influencer a shop of their own within our shop of joy they pick a subset of our products and they promote them. They promote their own store and nice. they drive traffic. If anyone buys anything, they actually make, uh, they, they get a share of that revenue. Like an affiliate right? so model. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Nice. Interesting. And it's community led as well. Um, it's great to hear. I think, uh, you know, digital uh, changed uh, how we wish people happy birthday and how we send cards digitally and almost made a like and a comment on Facebook and a WhatsApp a bit trivial. So it's good that you're describing a digital service that uh, brings that physical and real experience back to it in a way. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're very excited about this. I mean, and by the way, I mean, you're not necessarily going to have the option of delivering physically all the time. Um, for example, with the lockdowns, right? Although we have exemption, a lot of people might not be comfortable Exactly. sending a gift anymore. Yeah. And so what we did recently was we also launched the digital gift cards category. So you can now send, you know, Netflix cards and, and, and Amazon cards and, and, and so on, PlayStation, Razor, to your friends and loved ones yeah. so that one day they get the gift without having to open the door and receive something physically from someone, even though we have, you know, uh, we have measures in place to avoid infection of any of our customers mm. or our staff. But you also get it instantly. So there's no lag. Even though we deliver gifts within three hours today, you know, there's still three hours, yeah. right? By a digital gift card, you get it immediately. Wow. Yeah, sounds like a space with huge potential. Uh, before we run out of time, you're launching, uh, a, a, according to the website, uh, a new service tomorrow. Uh, can you explain a bit about that and how apt it is for the current times? Yeah, so um, it's, it's very unfortunate what we're going through right now. Um, globally, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot of people are going through a lot of pain and suffering and, and um, our, our hearts go out to them. We want to try to help as much as we can. 
Right? Our business, fortunately, is doing very well. We're almost profitable. Our business has actually doubled in the last two months because we're a digital business, we're e-commerce, and people need us right now to be able to deliver on their behalf, to buy stuff on their behalf. Um, there's a lot of businesses that don't have that luxury. They're predominantly offline, right? Things like restaurants that rely on foot traffic, uh, spas and, and hair salons, you know, yoga studios and things like that. And so a lot of them are, are going through a world of pain where their expenses stay the same or maybe reduced, but they're still there. Meanwhile, the revenue has basically come to a standstill. And, and so what we said was, you know, this might not necessarily have made a, our, the cut in our priority list when we launched the next venture, but let's prioritize it, um, you know, because our, our community is important to us and we want to help them in whatever we can. So, you know, we'll make a token amount on that, not much, but it'll help these businesses survive. So what we do is essentially we ask these businesses to list on our site, on tujar.me, and tujar essentially translates loosely in Arabic to, you know, local merchant or, or local shop, right? And, and so for all local businesses um, that don't have this massive corporation behind them, they're not public and, and you know, they, they, they don't have unlimited reserves, um, for them, their runway is limited. It's just one or two months. So what we help them do is we help them get sales in today and, and from their loyal customers. And those customers will come in and, and ask for those services and products at a later date when things start opening up and they feel more comfortable venturing out. But in the process, what they do is they, they get a bit of a discount, right? So there's some benefit in it for the consumers, but they help the businesses get all of that revenue today, even though they're not delivering the service until later, and they can ride out the storm and they pay their bills in the meantime so that they're still around six months from now. So for example, my favorite restaurant just down the street, you know, I'd hate to see them go. Mm. Um, and so I want to do whatever I can to support them. So I tell all my friends about them, but that only has, you know, an incremental benefit that, that won't help the business if nobody can buy from them. Right. And even if they can't sell today, they can sell a voucher today. And that's what will help them do. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, it helps them, uh, you know, work, have loyalty with their customers as well and tap into that and, and providing yeah. a lot. Of Absolutely. In fact, the other thing, sorry, I forgot to mention was, you know, so for example, we give them a 10% discount, the consumers, right? So there's some benefit. Uh, and then, you know, we take a certain percentage and that's about 10% that covers our fees of, you know, the payment gateway, um, you know, all the OPEX and, and, you know, the tech team and the platform, the hosting of the server and so on. Um, and, and so that's nominal, it's much lower than we'd need it to be for us to prioritize as business in a traditional sense. Um, and then we, we find that, you know, not everyone redeems the vouchers at the end of the day because they either forgot or they leave the country or so on. And so the businesses actually benefit from, you know, even though they have to give up a discount on the commission, in many cases, they actually make money in the process. They, they don't, they, have, they make more than the face value of what they have to render at the end of the day. Mm. So. It's in, in the economic sense, it's a no-brainer for a lot of these businesses, and they'll get money in today, not later. Mm. So uh, before we uh, run out of time, uh, if we could try and end on a positive note, uh, do, do you think that what you're doing in digital transformation, would you encourage other companies to embrace it at this time? And, you know, we're entering uh, in Ramadan at the moment, and there's a few hot summer months ahead of us in the Middle East. What's your advice on, on companies who haven't started uh, their journey and uh, yeah, what would you encourage them to focus on? 
So look, um, whether I encourage them to or not, a lot of businesses are going online, right? And that's great because I think there is a much bigger opportunity, you know, even without COVID-19 in the picture for people to grow their business by being online. And that's what we're supporting them in doing, right? They have their own stores online as well, great. But if not, we'll help them, right? So, so we reach out to businesses all the time to get them to go online through us. Now, uh, th there is, as you said, you know, summer months coming, uh, lockdowns from, from, you know, from time to time, um, people even without a lockdown, not feeling comfortable going out. The convenience of being able to buy online, the cost effectiveness of being able to buy online, you know, these are all great reasons for companies to transform digitally. Um, and many of them have been doing it already. Um, we're here to support them as much as we can. Um, and so, you know, I, I give talks from time to time, helping, you know, uh, young business owners figure out how to, 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 to navigate these waters. You know, I mentor one-on-one -on -one all the time as well, friends of mine, their friends. Um, and, and we'd like to see more of them going online. I think having more options to spend online is great for consumers, mm. and they will then subsequently spend that much more time online and hopefully find businesses like ours or the local you know, restaurants and so on. So uh, digital is definitely a big opportunity. It's here to stay. COVID-19 has only you know, uh, accelerated the trend mm. and expedited it. And, and that's a, a great thing. So I think, you know, had, had this pandemic happened 20 years ago, I don't know what we would have done, mm. right? One, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. People wouldn't be able to work from home. Mm. Businesses wouldn't be able to sell online, mm. right? But in a way, I'm, if, if we had to go through a pandemic, I'm glad we're doing it today and not 20 years ago, right? And so a lot of businesses can actually survive given the fact that it is 2020 and they can sell online. Okay. And consumers can good. Uh, it's great to hear it, and it's good to see a su success story that's almost perfectly suited for uh, the current times. Lastly, uh, you know, the Middle East in general, uh, you're very entrenched in this region. Uh, I assume that you have an optimistic outlook. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, as you mentioned, uh, difficulties in uh, scaling across the region, but also there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of uh, pressure on economies. There's a lot of uh, geopolitical tension that exists. Uh, what's the positive outlook in the kind of short, medium term uh, that you hold for your businesses? Look, for us, I mean, we, we look at the region as a whole, the MINAPT region, Middle East, North Africa, Pakistan, and Turkey, and it's the $3.8 trillion economy, mm. right? That's today. It's expected to grow to 9.1 by 2030, mm. and, and it'll have a population of 880 million people. That's a lot of people to sell to. Mm. Yeah, that's bigger than India. Actually, sorry, I take that back. Sorry, it's not bigger than India, but it does have a much higher spending power, right? Especially concentrated in the GCC. Uh, so, 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 so that is a big opportunity in and of itself. Now, yes, it's difficult to do business across the region, and that's exactly why we built the startup studio. So we are geared to succeed in this region in that sense. And, and we're very excited. I, I don't see this trend changing anytime soon. Um, this region will continue to grow. More people will come online. A bigger proportion of sales will happen online, mm. right? And that's all great news for businesses like ours. Brilliant. Great note to finish on. Ritesh, thank you for your time this morning and best of luck with your ventures. And let's uh, chat again soon. Thanks very much. It was an absolute pleasure. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Take care.
Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy.